Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. This is Abby Martin. This is the audio version of each episode of the Empire Files hosted on Telesaur English. You can watch every episode at theempirefiles.tv. Human trafficking is a multi-billion dollar industry that entraps millions of people across the world. The majority of victims are abused and living in inhumane conditions. Many caught in this dark web originate from the Philippines, where human beings have become the number one export. In our last episode, I visited Damayan, a Filipina domestic worker-led group that organizes trafficking victims. Its founder, Linda Wallacon, explained these high numbers. There's no other option for these women to support their children except to continue working, you know, in their, you know, uh, receiving country like the U.S. And if I may just remind, you know, the government of the United States, our country was ruined, you know, primarily by the United States. Of course, the economic crisis can't be looked at in a vacuum. And all the root causes began long ago. The Philippine Islands have been choked by colonial powers for the past five centuries. Its mosaic of over 7,000 culturally distinct islands were first claimed by the Spanish Empire in 1525. Spain occupied and ruled the Philippines for the next three centuries. This long history of colonial domination is, at its heart, a history of resistance. At least 300 large-scale armed revolts were carried out by indigenous Filipinos against the Spanish Empire. One of the fiercest independence fighters was a woman known as Gabriela Salong, born in 1731. She rose to general in the indigenous army and personally led the longest lasting revolt against the colonizers, all by the age of only 31 years old, when she was captured and executed by Spanish troops. In 1896, Andres Bonifacio and his underground organization, the Cari Punan, declared the beginning of the Philippine Revolution with an uprising against colonial forces in Manila. The revolution quickly spread through the constellation of islands. After two years of sustained rebellion, and with Spain distracted by a war with the U.S., independence was imminent. About to be independent from Spain, we fought our, you know, uh, national, you know, war of independence against Spain. We already won, but then it was also at the time, you know, that capitalist America was rising, and it was looking for other markets, you know, uh, abroad, you know, uh, where they could get raw materials for the industries and uh, find new market for their products. And they found the Philippines. So, you know, they connived, you know, and so they negotiated with Spain, you know, you know, at our backs, you know, to say that, okay, so they're about to win. You might as well, you know, uh, want to sell this, you know, country to me. You know, I'll pay you and we'll take care of them. So that was the Treaty of Paris. In 1898, the Philippines declared itself independent for the very first time. But, true to the logic of empires, this was not recognized by Western powers. Instead, the defeated Spanish Empire drew up an imaginary deed and signed over ownership to the United States. The U.S. also claimed Cuba, Guam, and Puerto Rico in the conquest, and even paid a hefty compensation to Spain for their lost colony. As one senator said in celebration, the Philippines are ours forever. And just beyond the Philippines are China's illimitable markets. The power that rules the Pacific is the power that rules the world. Uh, that did not happen without a, a fight, you know. The <clears throat> resistance of the Philippine people continued. 
there was a time, you know, I think it was in 1904 or 1905, where the United States has, it has to kill all the male population in a big island named Summer uh, from 10 years old and above. Why? Because uh, they were outmaneuvered by the Filipino guerrillas, guerrillas and uh, many Americans were killed. And so the U.S. You know, uh, commander ordered the killing of all male uh, inhabitants of the island from 10 years old and above. Tactics like these embodied the war on the Philippine people. As one of the American commanders said openly to the Manila Times in 1901, his orders to the troops were clear. I want no prisoners. I wish you to kill and burn. The more you kill and burn, the better you will please me. Make it a howling wilderness. Filipinos strongly resisted this pacification in both conventional and guerrilla tactics. They were outmatched militarily. Only about one in four Filipinos were armed with a gun, the rest with nothing but bolos and spears. Repulsed by this war, over a dozen U.S. soldiers, many of them African-American, abandoned their posts to join the native resistance. One of them, David Fagan, even became a captain in the Revolutionary Army, nicknamed General Fagan by Filipino freedom fighters. The U.S. rounded up tens of thousands of peasants into concentration camps and designated battle zones that made no distinction between combatants and civilians. The war was officially declared over in 1902, but a guerrilla war by the Revolutionary Army raged on for another decade, and the atrocities continued. In 1906, U.S. forces sought to wipe out the stubborn resistance of the indigenous Moro people, when 1,000 of them, including many women and children, retreated to hide together in a nearby crater, they were mercilessly gunned down. Only six out of the thousand survived the massacre. The first 15 years of colonization were so brutal that the U.S. had already killed more Filipinos than the Spanish had over the previous 300 years. In that short time, over 1 million Filipinos were killed from a population that barely numbered 6 million. While American politicians waged their pacification campaign with mass killings, they built the structure of their new colony. U.S. Army generals were installed as dictators of different regions. A series of colonial laws sought to smash any dreams of national independence. Dissidents were either given lengthy prison sentences or executed in unspeakably cruel ways. English-only policies were enforced. It even became illegal to display the flag of the Philippine Republic. New trade laws and tariffs made it so that U.S. monopolies were nearly unchallenged. The islands were forced to develop as simply an export economy for a few goods like hemp, sugar, and tobacco. Much of the population was subjugated as plantation workers, who also served as a reserve labor force the U.S. exported to Hawaii, California, and beyond to replace higher-paid or striking workers. Huge logging and commercial mining projects stripped the land of raw materials and decimated the environment. Developments centered on producing for U.S. capitalists, not for the Filipino people, and dependence on U.S. patronage for survival. This elevated a tiny class of Filipinos. Big landlords and owners of mills and factories accumulated lavish wealth. Knowing the era of colonial rule was cracking, a comprador class was groomed to take over the formal rule from the United States. These stories were not even written in official history books of the Philippines. Uh, they are trying to cover up, you know, the ugly relationship of America and the Philippines. So there was a period where the Philippines was a direct colony of uh, the United States. The United States 
also experimented something very uh, new in the Philippines, neo-colonialism. Controlling a country not by direct force, not by having Americans rule the country, but by training the elite in the country, training them, educating them about you know, how America wants and needs the Philippines to be, you know, to support you know, their imperial design around the globe. And so that was happened. That's what happened to the Philippines beginning 1946. Uh, we were given, so-called given our independence after the United States has controlled the economy, the military, and then uh, the foreign relations, the education, everything that is critical and strategic for the country, they control. That era came with the end of World War II, during which the Japanese Empire attacked and occupied the Philippines. The political elite in the country dutifully switched to administrators of Japan's occupation, quick to show its imperial face in just one massacre known as the Bataan Death March, an estimated 18,000 captured Filipinos were killed in shootings, beatings, and beheadings by Japanese soldiers. President Roosevelt made an appeal to Filipinos, join our army to fight Japan, and we'll give you all the benefits of American veterans. Over 200,000 Filipinos answered that call. But as soon as the war ended, Congress revoked all benefits for Filipinos in the U.S. military. To this day, Congress refuses to grant those benefits to the 50,000 surviving Filipino veterans. Many thousands of Filipinos organized themselves to fight the Japanese Empire. The People's Anti-Japanese Army was born, led by socialists and with over 100,000 peasants. They not only fought the occupation, but liberated large areas of the country, set up communal governments, and redistributed farmland to the peasantry. Scared of this growing liberation movement, the U.S. promised to grant the Philippines independence when the war was over. But before granting it independence, it had to reconquer it. They quickly attacked the peasant movement and returned the lands to the feudal landlords. With a trusted circle of elites at the helm, the U.S. granted supposed independence in 1946. But while the American flag over Manila was lowered, only the form of rule had changed. The U.S. still kept a watchful eye over its colonial project. When the Revolutionary Army resurfaced in the late 1940s demanding land reform, the U.S. provided military aid and intelligence to help the Philippine government destroy the movement. Its investment wasn't just for cheap labor and resources. The U.S. Empire used the Philippines as its central base for imperial control of Asia, in particular during its wars on Korea and Vietnam. Elite after elite traded places as U.S. puppets, until one of them, President Ferdinand Marcos, didn't want to bother with the mask of democracy anymore. So in 1972, Marcos declared martial law and ruled through a military dictatorship for the next 14 years. A socialist movement was surging, recruiting everyone from college students in the cities to farmers in the countryside. A Moro separatist movement dominated an entire region of the country. These groups took up arms to fight Marcos's dictatorship with the New People's Army and the Moro National Liberation Front. Again, the U.S. Empire provided millions in military training and weapons to the Philippine Army to partner in its global war on communism. During this repression, Marcos cracked down on all political opponents. The regime jailed more than 70,000 people. An estimated 35,000 were tortured, and at least 3,000 killed. For the U.S., killing communists deserved total support. When President H.W. Bush visited the Philippines in 1981, he honored Marcos with a toast, saying, 
We love your adherence to democracy, but a mass movement of people who refused to give in to the dictatorship was growing. Widespread opposition forced Marcos to hold elections, which he lost. Like the pampered dictator he was, Marcos refused to step down until millions of Filipinos poured into the streets demanding his removal in 1986. While the U.S. government supported his overthrow, it still gave the dictator sanctuary and protection in the United States for his years of loyal service, even after he fled with billions stolen from the national treasury. The U.S.-backed successor, President Aquino, was just a cosmetic change. Although Marcos was gone, the fascist repression of the left remained, and the neoliberal order deepened. I want you to elaborate more on after 1946 and the era of neocolonialism and, and what's happened since, because then, of course, you had the era of neoliberalism, where you had these international banking institutions, uh, like you said, imposing these restrictions on these countries and, and mandating certain things to remove social welfare, etc. Talk about how that shaped the Philippines. You see, the Philippines is primarily an agricultural country, like, you know, uh, 70% of our people are farmers, uh, not all own the lands, many are landless, and only, you know, maybe about 15% are workers, yeah, and dwindling. The number of workers are uh, going down. Why? Uh, also, the number of farmers are going down too. Why? Because the economy has been undermined. You know, we have a vibrant uh, agricultural economy in the 60s and uh, early on, but it was destroyed by uh, capitalist agriculture. What the U.S. agriculture did was to deepen the problems and the contradictions in the agricultural sector like the small workers uh, became smaller, they lost the opportunity even to support themselves from the wages that they were making before. And uh, you know, middle farmers who own small lands, you know, lost their lands because they became poorer, they sold their lands, right? And those that are big became bigger. And the landlords became uh, collaborators, I would say, you know, they work hand in hand, you know with the uh, business, the agribusiness in the U.S. and other capitalist countries. Because right now the Philippines is not producing all the rice that it needs. We're uh, very dependent, you know, on rice. We even have rice for desserts. We, we eat rice three times a day and we use rice for dessert. Mm -hmm. That's how bad Filipinos want rice. But now we import rice. We import, <laughs> we import rice right now. You know, the dictator Marcos, he was the president when I was in high school and college in the 1960s and in the 1970s. When he became president, he embraced, you know, with open arms, you know, the policies of uh, privatization, deregulation, and neoliberalization of the IMF. What does that mean, you know? Uh, you know, uh, a smaller government, meaning, you know, uh, get the money out of the government, which translates to uh, lesser services for the people. So that's what happened. I was an activist in the Philippines in the 1970s. Uh, at the time, uh, 
the impact of American uh, economic interests in the Philippines is already well known, especially to the, uh, to the students and the academia. So I was part of the student body uh, trying to uh, educate you know, our people that a big part of our problem, the poverty and the unemployment in the country, is the subservience of our government to the uh, neoliberal uh, policies of the United States in the country. As a result of those uh, impositions by the International Monetary Fund, many of the government services were really cut down and the people did not just have enough, you know, uh, to access, you know, uh, basic services for themselves. Water and electricity, those were very prohibitive. You know, if you own a refrigerator in the country, you would really worry about paying the electric bills. So it was bad. And so you can just imagine how, you know, uh, during the time of Marcos in the 1970s, how the young people, you know, the unemployed and the students, were really up in arms, you know. Uh, their families do not have the basic services, the tuitions are high, there are no jobs. What, you know, what will they do? So they organized, you know, and they were really uh, calling for the government to push back on the IMF uh, conditionalities, but Marcos did not do that. What he did was he invented the labor export policy of the Philippines. The labor export policy, means, you know, uh, the government programmatically and systematically convince, you know, the people that the right way to go to support your family is to find work abroad. That's the labor export policy that was in the 1970s. And it's an invention of Marcos. He was so brilliant. He told the young people, especially the male ones, okay, you're looking for work? The work is abroad. I'm happy to help you. So, you know, that was also a strategy to diffuse, you know, the student movement and the youth movement, you know, that because there were so many rallies in the street. So, what now? So, there is no agriculture, there's no, there is no industrialization in the Philippines. All you have, the thriving economy in the Philippines, is the export of labor. That's why over 10% of the people are abroad. This is the story behind thousands of families with the heartbreaking burden of being ripped across oceans, only to find super exploitation and abuse in the same country that shaped their fates for the past century. Today, the U.S. Empire has no willingness to lose hold on the geostrategic Philippine Islands, and the caste of Western-backed autocrats continue their role. Decades of neoliberal ravaging and a war on the left has given rise to right-wing populist Duterte, promising national sovereignty, along with a new era of law and order. Since winning the presidency, Duterte has carried out a murderous war on drugs, defined by extrajudicial assassinations that have left thousands dead. Once again, Filipinos find themselves under martial law, in another extreme measure imposed by Duterte in May. He came to power with rhetoric against U.S. imperialism, but it will take a lot to sever the deep ties with the empire. The Philippines is still tens of billions in debt to the IMF, and with development projects like USAID, the U.S. continues to push through Philippine laws and policies that benefit U.S. corporations. Although a mass movement forced the closure of major American bases in 1992, the U.S. still maintains a major military presence, conducts joint war games, 
and has built up a proxy force in the Philippine army. Already allies, Trump and Duterte have signaled they will strengthen their military relationship under the banner of fighting terrorism. In fact, just this month, the U.S. gifted Duterte's government a weapon shipment of hundreds of machine guns and grenade launchers. But there's a force more powerful than these two strongmen that can change all of this. My understanding of change is truly uh, learning and uh, respecting the value of the poor people for change. You know, the people that are directly affected, you know, by problems, those are the people that you need, you know, if you want to make fundamental change. Not, you know, not the senators or the Congress people, not them. Because if you look at the interests of these people in the government, what interest will you see? Well, in the Philippines, you know, we know the interest of the bourgeoisie, uh, where, you know, an export, import country. So families, you know, people who are running that industry, those are the people that are running our country too. I'm really, I'm 65, you know, I look at things from a long, you know, uh, perspective. It's very sad. I mean, uh, you know, I was an activist when I was 18 years old. How, how many more years so that the country can do the right thing, you know? You know, how many more presidents? Meeting the courageous fighters in Damian, I was reminded that the history of Philippine resistance is an unbroken chain. From its first hand-to-hand -hand battles against colonizers wearing armor and swords, to organizing against today's exploiters who wear three-piece suits, the poor and oppressed in the Philippines are much more than victims of the system, but are indeed the force that will change it. Thank you for listening to the Empire Files podcast. If you want to subscribe to our mailing list, please sign up at theempirefiles.tv. We want this show to be a resource for those fighting against empire both here and abroad. Let us know what you think on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Empire Files and Facebook at The Empire Files.